Chapter Three of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Three. The hand of God stood on the highest point in all the borough, and Mr. Westray's apartments were in the third story. From the window of his sitting room, he could look out over the houses on to Calerne Flat, the great tract of salt meadows that separated the town from the sea. In the foreground was a broad expanse of red tiled roofs. In the middle distance, St. Sepulchre's Church, with its tower and soaring ridges, stood out so enormous that it seemed as if every house in the place could have been packed within its walls. In the background was the blue sea. In summer the purple haze hangs over the mouth of the estuary, and through the shimmer of the heat off the marsh can be seen the silver windings of the cull as it makes its way out to sea, and snow-white flocks of geese, and here and there the gleaming sail of a pleasure-boat but in autumn, as Westray saw it for the first time, the rank grass is of a deeper green, and the face of the salt meadows is seamed with irregular clay-brown channels, which at high tide show out like crow's feet on an ancient countenance, but at the ebb dwindle to little gullies with greasy-looking banks and a dribble of iridescent water in the bottom. It is in the autumn that the moles heap up meanders of miniature barrows built of the softest brown loam, and in the turberies the turf-cutters pile larger and darker stacks of peat. Once upon a time there was another feature in the view, for there could have been seen the masts and yards of many stately ships, of timber-vessels in the Baltic trade, of tea-clippers and Indiamen and emigrant ships, and now and then the raking spars of a privateer owned by Cologne adventurers. All these had long since sailed for their last port, and of ships nothing more imposing met the eye than the mask of Dr. Enever's centreboard laid up for the winter in a backwater. Yet the scene was striking enough, and those who knew best said that nowhere in the town was there so fine an outlook as from the upper windows of the hand of God. Many had looked out from those windows upon that scene. The skipper's wife, as our eyes followed her husband's bark, warping down the river for the voyage from which she never came back. Honeymoon couples, who broke the posting journey from the west at Cologne, and sat hand in hand in summer twilight, gazing seaward till the white mists rose over the meadows, and Venus hung brightening in the violet sky. Old Captain Frobisher, who raised the Cologne yeomanry, and watched with his spyglass for the French vanguard to appear. And, lastly, Martin Jolliffe, as he sat dying, day by day, in his easy chair, and scheming how he would spend the money when he should come into the inheritance of all the Blandamers. Westray had finished breakfast, and stood for a time at the open window. The morning was soft and fine, and there was that brilliant clearness in the air that so often follows heavy autumn rain. His full enjoyment of the scene was, however, marred by an obstruction which impeded free access to the window. It was a case of ferns, which seemed to be formed of an aquarium turned upside down and supported by a plain wooden table. Westray took a dislike to the dank-looking plants, and to the moisture beaded on the glass inside, and made up his mind that the ferns must be banished. He would ask Miss Jolliffe if she could take them away, and this determination prompted him to consider whether there were any other articles of furniture with which it would be advisable to dispense. He made a mental inventory of his surroundings. There were several pieces of good mahogany furniture, including some open-backed chairs, and at last tried a bookcase, which were survivals from the yeoman's equipment at Whitcomb Farm. 
they'd be put up for auction with the rest of Michael Jollis's effects, but Cologne tastes considered them old-fashioned, and no bidders were found for them. Many things, on the other hand, such as bead mats and woolwork mats and fluff mats, a case of wax fruit, a basket of shell flowers, chairs with worsted work backs, sofa cushions with worsted work fronts, two cheap vases full of pampas grass, and two candlesticks with dangling prisms, grated sadly on Westray's taste, which he had long since been convinced was of all tastes the most impeccable. There were a few pictures on the walls, a coloured representation of young Martin Jolliffe in black forest costume, a faded photograph of a boating crew, and another of a group in front of some ruins, which was taken when the Carysbury Field Club made an expedition to Whitcomb Abbey. Besides these, there were conventional copies in oils of a shipwreck and an avalanche, and a painting of still life representing a bowl full of flowers. This last picture weighed on Westry's mind by reason of its size, its faulty drawing, and vulgar, flashy colours. It hung full in front of him while he sat at breakfast, and though its details amused him for the time, he felt it would become an eyesore if he should continue to occupy the room. In it was represented the polished top of a mahogany table, on which stood a blue and white china bowl filled with impossible flowers. The bowl occupied one side of the picture, and the other side was given up to a meaningless expanse of table-top. The artist had perceived, but apparently too late, the bad balance of the composition, and had endeavoured to redress this by a few more flowers thrown loose upon the table. Towards these flowers a bulbous green caterpillar was wriggling, at the very edge of the table and of the picture. The result of Westray's meditations was that the fern-case and the flower-picture stood entirely condemned. He would approach Miss Jolliffe at the earliest opportunity about their removal. He anticipated little trouble in modifying by degrees many other smaller details, but previous experience in lodgings had taught him that the removal of pictures is sometimes a difficult and delicate problem. He opened his rolls of plans, and selecting those which he required, prepared to start for the church, where he had to arrange with the builder for the erection of scaffolding. He wished to order dinner before he left, and pulled a broad worsted-work bell-pull to summon his landlady. For some little time he had been aware of the sound of a fiddle, and as he listened, waiting for the bell to be answered, the intermittence and reiteration of the music convinced him that the organist was giving a violin lesson. His first summons remained unanswered, and when a second attempt met with no better success, he gave several testy pulls in quick succession. This time he heard the music cease, and made no doubt that his indignant ringing had attracted the notice of the musicians, and that the organist had gone to tell Miss Jolliffe that she was wanted. He was ruffled by such want of attention, and when there came at last a knock at his door, was quite prepared to expostulate with his landlady on her remissness. As she entered the room, he began, without turning from his drawings, "'Never knock, please, when you answer the bell, but I do wish you—' Here he broke off, for on looking up he found he was speaking not to the elder Miss Jolliffe, but to her niece, Anastasia. The girl was graceful, as he had seen the evening before, and again he noticed the peculiar fineness of her waving brown hair. His annoyance had instantaneously vanished and he experienced to the full the embarrassment natural to a sensitive mind on finding a servant's role played by a lady, for that Anastasia Jolliffe was a lady he had no doubt at all. Instead of blaming her, he seemed to be himself in fault for having somehow brought about an anomalous position. 
She stood with downcast eyes, but his chiding tone had brought a slight flush to her cheeks, and this flush began a discomfiture for Westray that was turned into a rout when she spoke. "'I'm very sorry. I'm afraid I've kept you waiting. I did not hear your bell at first because I was busy in another part of the house, and then I thought my aunt had answered it. I did not know she was out.' It was a low, sweet voice, with more of weariness in it than of humility. If he chose to blame her, she was ready to take the blame. But it was Westray who now stammered some incoherent apologies. Would she kindly tell Miss Jolliffe that he would be in for dinner at one o'clock, and that he was quite indifferent as to what was provided for him? The girl showed some relief at his blundering courtesy, and it was not till she had left the room that Westray recollected that he had heard the Cologne was celebrated for its red mullet. He meant to order red mullet for dinner. Now that he was mortifying the flesh by drinking only water, he was proportionately particular to please his appetite in eating. Yet he was not sorry that he had forgotten the fish. It would surely have been a bathos to discuss the properties and application of red mullet with a young lady who found herself in so tragically lowly a position. After Westray had set out for the church, Anastasia Jolliffe went back to Mr. Charnel's room, for it was she who had been playing the violin. The organist sat at the piano, drumming chords in an impatient and irritated way. "'Well,' he said, without looking at her, she came in, "'well, what does my lord want with my lady? "'What has he made you run up to the top of the house for now? "'I wish I could wring his neck for him. "'Here we are, out of breath as usual, and our hands shaking. "'We shan't be able to play even as well as we did before, "'and that isn't saying much. "'Why,' he cried, as he looked at her, "'you're as red as a turkey-cock. "'I believe he's been making love to you.' "'Mr. Charnel,' she reported quickly, "'if you say those things, I will never come to your room again.' "'I hate you when you speak like that, and fancy you are not yourself.' She took her violin, and, putting it under her arm, plucked Arpeggi sharply. "'There,' he said, "'don't take all I say so seriously. It's only because I am out of health and out of temper. Forgive me, child. I know well enough that there'll be no love-making with you till the right man comes. And I hope he never will come, Anastasia. I hope he never will.' She did not accept or refuse his excuses, but tuned a string that had gone down. "'Good heavens!' he said, as she walked to the music-stand to play. "'Can't you hear the A's as flat as a pancake?' She tightened the string again without speaking, and began the movement in which they had been interrupted. But her thoughts were not with the music, and mistake followed mistake. "'What are you doing?' said the organist. "'You're worse than you were when we began five years ago. It's a mere waste of time for you to go on, and for me too.' Then he saw that she was crying in the bitterness of vexation, and swung round on his music-stool without getting up. "'And says I didn't mean it, dear. I didn't mean to be such a brute. You're getting on well. Well. That's for wasting my time. Why, I haven't got anything to do, nor anyone to teach except you. And you know I would slave all day, and all night too, if I could give you any pleasure by it. Don't cry. Why are you crying?' She laid the violin on the table, and, sitting down in that rush-bottomed chair in which Westray had sat the night before, put her head between her hands, and burst into tears. "'Oh,' she said between her sobs in a strange and uncontrolled voice, "'oh, I am so miserable. Everything is so miserable. There are father's debts not paid, not even the undertaker's bill paid for his funeral. No money for anything, and poor Aunt Euphemia working herself to death. And now she says she will have to sell the little things we have in the house, and then, when there is a chance of a decent lodger, a quiet, gentlemanly man,' 
"'You go and abuse him, say these rude things to me, because he rings the bell. "'How does he know auntie's out? "'How does he know she won't let me answer the bell when she's in? "'Of course he thinks we have a servant, and then you make me so sad. "'I, I couldn't sleep last night because I knew you were drinking. "'I heard you when we went to bed playing trashy things that you hate except when you are not yourself.' makes me ill to think you've been with us all these years and been so kind to me, and now I come to this. Oh, do not do it. Surely we're all wretched enough without your adding this to our wretchedness. He got up from the stool and took her hand. Don't, Antis, don't. I broke myself of it before, and I will break myself again. It was a woman drove me to it then, sent me down the hill, and now I didn't know there was a living soul would care whether old Charnel drank himself to death or not. "'I could only think there was someone who cared. "'I could only think you cared.' "'Of course I care.' "'And as she felt his hand tighten, "'she drew her own lightly away. "'Of course we care, poor aunt and I, "'or she would care if she knew, "'and she's so good she doesn't guess. "'I hate to see those horrid glasses "'taken in after your supper. It "'Used to be so different, "'and I loved to hear the pastoral and laser dew "'going when the house was still.' It is sad when man's unhappiness veils from him the smiling face of nature. The promise of the early morning was maintained. The sky was of a translucent blue, broken with islands and continents of clouds, dazzling white like cotton wool. A soft, warm breeze blew from the west. The birds sang merrily in every garden bush, and Cologne was a town of gardens, where men could sit each under his own vine and fig tree. The bees issued forth from their hives and hummed with cheery droning chorus in the ivy berries that covered the wall-tops with deep purple. The old veins on the corner pinnacles of St. Sepulchre's char shone as if they had been regilt. Great flocks of plovers flew wheeling over Cologne Marsh and flashed with a blinking silver gleam as they changed their course suddenly. Even through the open window of the organist's room fell a shaft of golden sunlight that lit up the peonies of the faded, threadbare carpet. But inside beat two poor human hearts, one unhappy and one hopeless, and saw nothing of the gold veins, or the purple ivy-berries, or the plovers, or the sunlight, and heard nothing of the birds or the bees. "'Yes, I will give it up,' said the organist, though not quite so enthusiastically as before. And as he moved closer to Anastasia Jolliffe, she got up and left the room, laughing as she went out. "'I must get the potatoes peeled, or you will have none for dinner.' Mr. Westray, being afflicted neither with poverty nor age, but having a good digestion and entire confidence, both in himself and in his prospects, could fully enjoy the beauty of the day. He walked this morning as a child of the light, forsaking the devious backways through which the organist had led him on the previous night, and choosing the main streets on his road to the church. He received this time a different impression of the town. The heavy rain had washed the pavements and roadway, and as he entered the market square he was struck with the cheerfulness of the prospect, and with the air of quiet prosperity which pervaded the place. On two sides of the square the houses overhung the pavement, and formed an arcade supported on squat pillars of wood. Here were situated some of the best establishments, as their owners delighted to call them. Custance, the grocer, Rosenstory, the drapers, who occupied the fronts of no less than three houses, and besides a department round the corner exclusively devoted to tailoring. Lucy, the bookseller, 
who printed the Cologne Examiner and had published several of Canon Parkin's sermons, as well as a tractate by Dr. Enifer on the means adopted in Cologne for the suppression of cholera during the recent outbreak. Calvin, the saddler, Miss Adcott of the toy shop, and Pryor, the chemist, who was also postmaster. In the middle of the third side stood the Blandoma arms, with a long front of buff, low-green blinds, and window-sashes grained to imitate oak. At the edge of the pavement before the inn were some stone mounting steps, and by them stood a tall white pole, on which swung the green and silver of the nebuli coat itself. On either side of the Blandoma arms clustered a few more modern shops, which, possessing no arcade, had to be content with awnings of brown stuff with red stripes. One of these places of business was occupied by Mr. Jolliffe, the pork-butcher. He greeted Westray through the open window. "'Good morning. About your work betimes, I see,' pointed to the roll of drawings which the architect carried under his arm. "'It's a great privilege, this restoration to which you are called.' And here he shifted a chop into a more attractive position on the shop-board. "'And I trust blessing will attend your efforts.' often manage to snatch a few minutes from the whirl of business about midday myself, and seek a little quiet meditation in the church. If you are there, then, I shall be glad to give you any help in my power. Meanwhile, we must both be busy on our own duties. He began to turn the handle of a sausage machine, and Westray was glad to be quit of his pious words, and still more of his insufferable patronage. End of chapter 3